Hello everyone, this is your host Caroline Owen, and thanks for tuning in to the new episode of The Global Perspective, my podcast about all things political, multicultural, and international. This is the ninth episode, titled DNC vs. RNC 2020, Overview and Analysis. And today I'll be discussing some of the key points that speakers put up about the Democratic and Republican National Conventions, which occurred last week and the preceding week. Additionally, I'll be giving both my professional and personal insight onto both the nature of the event, the topics that are being discussed, and how both conventions were actually, you know, physically or virtual held. Um, This episode is not really designed as a fill-in for watching the DNC or the RNC itself, so I highly recommend if you haven't taken the time yet to um, you know, do a little bit of ex- exploration or self-informing on both of those conventions, that you just read a little bit about them on either on the news, by watching some of the clips, reading transcripts of the speeches, really just do whatever you can to make sure you get that informed opinion. Although I do consider myself pretty left on the political spectrum, I'm not going to let that, or I'll not, I'm not going to let my political affiliation influence the way that I'm going to report on both of these events, and although I did watch the DNC with a lot more splendor and willingness than the Republican National Convention, both of them had very valid points and were very intriguing. Today I'm going to be breaking my discussion down into three different categories. Number one, a generic overview of kind of like a a quantifiable biometric, if you will, of both the DNC and the RNC. This is just going to be statistics, a very technical and, I guess, viewer or consumer type analysis. Secondly, I'll be doing a bit of fact checking. And then thirdly, I'll be doing an exploration of the key themes, which is going to be more from a politician or almost like a news reporter standpoint. Um, Before we start off, I just want to say I I do apologize for this being a rather late episode, uh, but I I had to do a lot of research and a lot of reworking. Um, I did record this episode a couple different times before, and I ended up not really being satisfied with the versions. Um, But the, the audio for today, I'm sure, will be great enough for all of you to learn something from. And additionally, um, today's episode is going to be a bit different as it's just going to be me recording solo. However, to break things up and hopefully prevent an air of monotony, I'll be using some audio clips from two keynote speakers from the Democratic side and two keynote speakers from the Republican side, just to kind of give you um, a bit of a, a taste of what the convention were like. So I'm just going to get right into it, and I'll start off with the first category, which is the generic overview of the convention itself and the statistics. In general, um, both the Democratic, both the Democrats and the Republicans had to do a lot of work to get their convention uh, up and running for a virtual or mostly virtual uh, adjustment. And this was a, a large adaptation that they had to make, considering that normally the DNC and the RNC would be very elite, very... Um, high-profile political events which hunt with hundreds of thousands of people in attendance that would have been you know obviously an incredible public safety hazard given the the current state of our country but also just a very high-profile and intense political event that um, would have been even more controversial now than our you know the current political state of our nation so for those reasons most specifically covid related reasons uh, the Republicans and the Democrats had to learn how to adapt the convention to a more consumer-friendly and a more safe and socially distanced model. The Democratic and the Republican approaches, however, to this question of how they would revamp their convention amidst the pandemic differed pretty greatly. The Democrats took on almost an entirely virtual approach to the, the DNC, whereas most of the four nights were 
almost made in a political analysis news show or kind of like a tv show type approach where each night was moderated by a different host all four of them were women of color and it was a collection of mostly montage videos either of interviews or speeches sent in by just regular american citizens montages about biden's life and his track record as the former vice president and when he was a senator from delaware in the past or about his family history, which is another theme that I'll bring up later that's pretty prominent for the Democratic convention. But generally, their approach to holding the convention was almost entirely virtual. So the keynote speakers all gave speeches either from their home or from a government office in which they were by themselves private. And these speeches were either being live transmitted to viewers via you know Zoom or some other video platform, or they were being sent as a pre-recorded video. Generally, the, the Democrats took on a very hands-off, if you will, virtual approach. Not, not hands-off in a way that implies a lack of effort, because there was a significant effort put forth by both technology experts and political strategists to get this really to all work so smoothly. Um, but just in generally, in general, it was a very almost... Um, pieced together event with a lot of different speeches with different topics, different speakers that not only highlighted the diversity and the breadth of or the depth of the Democratic Party, both of age and race, which are the two specific, um, you know, age, age and race are the two specific demographics that um, people really are focusing on this election term, but also just in that it was a lot less personal, I feel, and a lot less political than it normally would have been compared to the Republican approach, which was a lot more like one of Trump's campaign rallies in its nature. The Democratic approach in general was a lot more almost like a, a little bit of a program that you'd watch on TV instead of an event that you would attend in person, since it was mostly um, pre-recorded speeches, as I said before, and montages of videos and slideshows that were pieced together and then narrated by a host. The Republican approach was a bit different. Um, most, if I believe 75% of the events were held on the White House or on, you know, U.S. government federally owned land. And this differs a lot from previous conventions because there's a bit of an informal rule amongst U.S. politicians that whenever these uh, major office or major party um, campaigns or conventions are held, that they should be separated as much as possible from the current administration and the separation of state and election or, or policy and party is something that um, will come up later as a major theme of how this convention was approached by the Republicans. In general, almost all of the speeches held, uh, given by Republicans were actually, you know, they were live speeches, live transmitted, very few pre-recorded speeches. But additionally, they were all being held in the same exact spot. And Almost all of the Republican speakers spoke live to a crowd of dozens to hundreds of people as they sat, stood behind a podium and delivered their speech. This is a lot more of a, as I said before, a typical per se campaign rally or just you know your standard political event in nature. And I think part of this is the desire to maintain a sense of normalcy and a sense of familiarity and keeping it similar to a you know, the former version of the convention or what would have been had we not been in a global health crisis. Additionally, for the speeches that 
the uh, Republican candidates gave live, they were also um, being held rapid fire one after another. And I felt that this, compared to the Democratic approach, both increased and decreased the cohesiveness of the events. I feel that with the Democratic approach, they would introduce a theme of the night, whether it was racial justice, climate change, and the Green New Deal, gender equality, diversity, whatever it might have been. Then they had a little bit of a montage, one keynote speaker on that particular topic, and then they kind of used that same, I guess, digital transition to move it into the next topic. I felt that the Republican approach, while it was definitely a bit more normal and a bit more personal and, you know, more typical of a political speech in nature i felt that having speakers who were talking most of them about a melange of things but if you had speakers talking about the same topic back to back or even different topics back to back i feel like it just juxtaposes two different topics next to each other which can kind of make it look like you took a bunch of politicians talking about different topics and kind of just smushed them together without having a break um, and and there were several instances in the RNC where they used, similar to the Democrats, you know, digital montages, videos, um, you know, not live or not keynote speakers to kind of increase this cohesiveness and add a transition. So I think both parties did implement that. However, the, the key difference was that the Republican approach was far more live events um, and almost all of the speeches were conducted live and on federal land, which is or was at least very different from the democratic approach, which was all digital, and for the most part in a private, separate location, depending on the person. Next, I'm going to quickly go over diversity, which is another aspect of the convention I feel like should be highlighted. Generally, the Republicans and the Democrats did a good job of having diversity in the three biometrics that I'll lay out, which are gender, ethnicity, race, and political alineation or affiliation. However, the Democrats did have higher statistics for um, racial and gender makeup in terms of the proportion of women to men and people of color to white speakers. The DNC had about 90 speakers that I could just count from a list, and of those, about 40 were men and about 50 were women. So just having this number of over half of the speakers of the DNC be women really just highlights that the Democrats have this um, you know, high priority on not only elevating women in a political office, but also just showcasing the power of women in office. Typically, American politics have been very male and white dominated in the past, and even still they continue to be. So I think it's a really important move for both the, the Democratic and the Republican parties to try and get more women and more people of color to vote for them. And, you know, specifically female and black voters are the two groups that both of these political parties are trying to get to vote for them this season, in this election term, excuse me. In terms of the Republican side, out of about 70 speakers, about 20 were men, uh, 20 were women, excuse me, and 50 were men. So they, they still showcased, you know, significantly high-ranking women, such as Nikki Haley, whose speech I'll show later, who is the former um, ambassador to, to the United Nations from the United States, and some several other high-ranking women in office who are Republicans. However, they did have you know more of a male-dominated presence, which was tip is still typical of the Republican Party. Additionally, on the terms of racial makeup, the Democratic speakers were about 
um, 42 out of the 90, so just under half were people of color, whereas for the Republican side, it was only about 19 out of 70. So same with women. Both of these groups had about similar statistics on both of those. And the last note is going to be on political affiliation, and I'll bring this up later, but one of the core efforts of both the DNC and the RNC were to gain the trust and the possible vote of a wide variety of demographics. Typically, men lean a bit more conservative, at least for this election. Women lean a bit more liberal, and white voters, at least old older white voters, lean more conservative, and younger voters and people of color lean more um, liberal. So a lot of these demographic groups kind of have their own vote um, pretty much just laid out, or I guess it can be easily predicted. So both of these groups are trying to reach out to the respective um, or both of these political parties are trying to expand their reach on Americans into groups that might not normally vote for them. So both the Republicans and the Democrats showcased, you know, respectively Democrats and Republicans who are endorsing the opposing party's candidate, um, such as John Kasich of Ohio, who is a he's a lifelong Republican who is going to be endorsing or who did endorse Biden and additionally. Um, Representative Jim Van Nice, I believe, of New Jersey, who actually was a Democrat who switched his party to Republican in solidarity of supporting Trump. So this is just a little bit of a tidbit, but I think it's important to analyze not only the diversity of the party makeup, but also how that reflects into the convention, because I think showing diversity both in terms of ethnicity and race ethnicity, race, and gender is a much more liberal and democratic pursuit in this election season than for the Republicans, which is something that ties in later. I'm going to move on to, um, actually, before I do fact-checking, I'm going to break quickly and just discuss a little bit on the next section, which is going to be the exploration of key themes. I feel like this is kind of tying in, and I think it would be a good time to break with a speech or a, a keynote speaker from the night. I'm going to start out with one of the major themes, which has been preserving the quote-unquote soul of the nation. And this is something that both the Democrats and the Republicans have really stressed extensively in their speeches. I'm going to share with you quickly a speech, er, a section from Tim Scott, who is a he is a Republican and an African-American man, and he's representing not only um, black Republicans, which are a significant minority group, and, and as well as people from um, the Carolinas, which is the region in which he represents. So I'm going to play a quick um, excerpt of his speech, which really just describes what the Republican approach is in terms of, quote-unquote, preserving the integrity of America. Ladies and gentlemen, people don't always see those failures because they think we're having a policy debate on two sides of an issue. That is not what is happening. Our side is working on policy, while Joe Biden's radical Democrats are trying to permanently transform what it means to be an American. Make no mistake, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris want a cultural revolution, a fundamentally different America. If we let them, they will turn our country into a socialist utopia and history has taught us that path only leads to pain and misery, especially for hardworking people hoping to rise. This excerpt just 
goes to illustrate one of the core fears and themes that Republicans were expressing during the convention, which is essentially that if Democrats are elected, they will make every policy with a socialist or far left quote unquote agenda or mindset. And so because of that, they really fear that Democrats, if elected, will basically turn America into an unrecognizable country in which the values and the um, the core, I guess, essence that most Republican Americans consider really integral to preserving the country will just be destroyed or disappeared. And I feel like this is a valid concern just for, just on the note of the fact that a lot of the policies put forth by these very left-leaning, um, you know, politicians such as Bernie Sanders, who is a self-proclaimed socialist, and AOC, the representative from New York City. But I feel at the same time, it's important to acknowledge that not all Democrats are socialists. Not all Democrats are even far left on the agenda or on the political spectrum. Joe Biden considers himself a moderate, and. You know, it is really important to acknowledge that both on the Democratic and the Republican sides, those parties encompass a wide variety of political beliefs. So it's it's really just important to understand that one side doesn't necessarily reflect everyone and one title of Democratic doesn't reflect everyone who might be, you know, a far left socialist, a far right, relatively conservative Democratic, but still on the Democratic label. I think that's just important to note. I'm going to uh, quickly shift it over to the Democratic perspective, which is that if Republicans are elected, they will prevent America from taking the steps it needs to not only acknowledge its its past, but also move forward. And I think especially with the the current quote-unquote wake-up call that the George Floyd protests and really just the state of our country regarding um, civil unrest and racial justice are really just posing this new threat to people who want to see our country move forward. And the fear that Democrats have is essentially that if Trump is re-elected, his campaign will continue to strip away policies that protect people of color, LGBTQ people, especially in the workforce and in the military that essentially his administration will undo the progress that Democrats have made in the past um, under the guise of either protecting, you know, America's integrity or keeping traditional values. And essentially, similar to how Republicans feel that Democrats will move the country too forward and kind of like distort America into this unrecognizable, super progressive country, which obviously not, not everyone agrees with, even on the Democratic side. Democrats believe that if, you know, as as multiple speakers have did express during their speeches, that if Republicans are elected, they're going to not make the change that's necessary, the progressive action that even though, sure, it doesn't really agree with Republican Party values is necessary from a social justice and a social change perspective, that because of the guise of being a Republican, they're going to not want to approve those policies just because they seem too progressive or too liberal. Something I'm going to bring up next, which actually was from Mike Bloomberg's speech, Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City, is economic reform. And this will bleed into fact-checking, but this is something that has um, given a lot of scrutiny both to Trump and to actually you know several Democratic leaders like Andrew Cuomo for how different people in leadership responded to the pandemic. So I'll play a quick quip before I get into the economic and the COVID section of my analysis of the DNC and the RNC. 
But tonight, I'm not asking you to vote against Donald Trump because he's a bad guy. I'm urging you to vote against him because he's done a bad job. Today, unemployment is at historic highs and small businesses are struggling just to survive. It didn't have to be this way. Before I ran for mayor, I spent 20 years running a business I started from scratch. So I want to ask small business owners and their employees one question, and it's a question for everyone. Would you rehire or work for someone who ran your business into the ground and who always does what's best for him or her, even when it hurts the company and whose reckless decisions put you in danger? and who spends more time tweeting than working? If the answer is no, why the hell would we ever rehire Donald Trump for another four years? Trump says we should vote for him because he's a great businessman. Really? He drove his companies into bankruptcy six times, always leaving behind customers and contractors who were cheated and swindled and stopped doing business with him. Well, this time, all of us are paying the price. And we can't let him get away with it again. Donald says we should vote for him because the economy was great before the virus. Huh? Biden and Obama created more jobs over their last three years than the Trump administration did over their first three. And economic growth was higher under Biden and Obama than under Trump. In fact, while Biden helped save one million auto industry jobs, Trump has lost 250,000 manufacturing jobs. So when Trump says he wants to make America great again, he's making a pretty good case for Joe Biden. Look, our- that excerpt just goes to show not only how fervently um, Michael Bloomberg does not approve of Trump, but also the fact that he's approved he's approaching this from a businessman standpoint, considering that. You know, Michael Bloomberg is the founder of Bloomberg Industries, a multi-million dollar corporation. But essentially, this ties into the next major thing I'm going to be talking about, which is economy. The economy, especially regarding this idealism of like America as a world superpower and an economic superpower, is something that a lot of Republicans hold dear and near to them. And it's really one of the core values of modern American Republicans. Essentially, one of the core areas, not only of you know concern amidst the pandemic, but also of fact checking that I did when in regards to these speeches at the RNC and the DNC was regarding Trump's economic approach and economic relief systems that were implemented during the pandemic. I think it'd be a good time to just break quickly and I'll talk a little bit about the fact checking that I did. Most of it did end up relating to policy and economics anyway, so it should fit pretty well in this section. Essentially, CNN reported that in Trump's acceptance speech, he had over 20 misleading or lying statements. And I will acknowledge that there, I will go over shortly to some Democrats who did have these faulty or lying statements as well. But generally, Republicans had a significantly higher rate of these fact-checking incidents that proved for them to have said something that was either incorrect or false in some way. Essentially, um, during his speech, Trump stated that a couple he made a couple of statements regarding, you know, the economy and the jobs that were altered by COVID, which were true but needed significant additional context for them to make sense. Essentially, he stated that 
we gained 9 million jobs in the last three months, and then because of that, he's credited with one of the biggest economic reliefs or economic, um, I guess, job buyback programs that really just saved Americans from us entering into another you know, global economic collapse. It's important to note that even though we did gain 9 million jobs in three months, we also lost 22 million shortly before then. And out of those 22 million jobs, it's estimated that about 16 still haven't, or 16 million rather, still haven't been, you know, given back to hardworking Americans. Additionally, he stated that PPP, which is called the Paycheck Protection Program, which he implemented, has saved around 14 million jobs, 50, 50, 50 million jobs. However, it actually only Im- implemented this to work for 14 million people. So 36 million Americans still haven't been able to actually use Paycheck Protection Program. So the economic and, you know, industrial strategies that our president has implemented during COVID really aren't as strong as he makes them out to be. Additionally, um, I'll tie this into it later, but just to add on to that whole, you know, Democrats are turning country, our country to a socialist left state. Another thing that's come up a lot with the speeches from the the Republican side is this whole notion of defunding the police amidst calls for racial justice and radical improvement of our society to better, you know, incorporate minority voices and protect minorities. So in his his acceptance speech of the nomination, Trump said that, quote, when Joe Biden was asked about whether he wanted to defund the police, he responded, yes, absolutely. This, in fact, never happened. And in fact, in a very recent interview, Biden actually stated that he doesn't support defunding the police. Rather, he just wants Democrats to reallocate police funding for training and exercising and operations that would actually just help the police to better accommodate minorities and better uh, treat people better to prevent these instances of you know, unjust racially targeted violence. Another thing I want to touch on, I've already discussed this notion of the soul and the, I guess, idealism of America, also touched a little bit on economics. I want to talk a little bit more about some more specific topics. Um, And, you know, of course, the major focus of both the Democratic and the Republican conventions is to either support Joe Biden or Donald Trump, respectively, and basically rile up support for that um, particular candidate to be elected into office. I'm going to now play an excerpt of a speech from um, Nikki Haley, who, as I said before, is the former um, ambassador to the United Nations from the United States, or the delegate representing the U.S. at the U.N. And essentially, she adds on to this notion, some of the notions I've said before about what the future of America would look like under Biden and under a Biden-Harris administration. A Biden-Harris administration would be much, much worse. Last time, Joe's boss was Obama. This time, it would be Pelosi, Sanders, and the squad. Their vision for America is socialism, and we know that socialism has failed everywhere. They want to tell Americans how to live and what to think. They want a government takeover of health care. They want to ban fracking and kill millions of jobs. They want massive tax hikes on working families. Joe Biden and the socialist left would be a disaster for our economy. But President Trump is leading a new era of opportunity. 
Another bit of fact-checking I just wanted to introduce was actually mentioned, not only in Ms. Haley's speeches, but also in others. This proposed tax hike is something that Republicans mentioned a lot during the convention. Essentially, it was a a suggestion that Biden, if elected, would implement a $4 billion tax on the working-class American families and their wages. However, this tax, in theory, would only raise you know taxes for people in the middle class or the, the lower upper class by only 0.2 to 0.4% of their annual income. And in fact, the majority of the Levi's on this new tax would be on the one percenters, the top one percent earners in our nation, and they would have 13 to 18 percent tax increases. There have been a lot of statements thrown around by both the blue and the the blue, the left and the red and the right that are just you know not true. And in fact, I feel like can kind of blind people from actually doing the work to uncover the truth of political statements. You know, lies have been of course, given by both sides, specifically more by Republicans than Democrats. And there were a lot of instances I could have cited here. I just chose to pick just a a few that stood out to me. But again, I will stress this later. It's really important to be politically informed when you're not only making political decisions, but just learning about candidates. One of the major themes that I feel like should be touched on before I go into my final speech is this notion of winning the vote. And Really, the major effort of both the Democratic and the Republican Party, as I said before, is to secure the vote of people who otherwise wouldn't be voting for them. These are either disengaged Republicans who don't want to vote for Trump, but also don't really agree with Biden's values and they need that final push. These might be, you know, white voters who voted for Hillary Clinton and were really disappointed by her past or her political leadership and now they want a new chance and they want to vote for a republican candidate this time whatever it might be you know possibly disengaged minorities who don't really approve of biden's you know former record with politics and they they want to give trump a shot whatever it might be both of these candidates are really just trying to secure the vote of these specific groups of people which are most notably women and people of color specifically black people and it's important to note that race relations and gender relations and politics are extremely complicated and when intertwined just make things even more intense and politically charged. So I think it's always good to have some sensitivity when talking about these topics. What I'll add is something that I also think is important to note is that as I will be giving right now a little bit of an excerpt from Michelle Obama's speeches, she mentioned this quote-unquote kids in cages which is a phrase that's been thrown around a lot by Democrats, and it's, it refers to the policy that you know Trump's administration has implemented of detaining children's of mi- children of migrants at the U.S. border, specifically the U.S.-Mexico border. And although they really these children really aren't being housed in very safe or humane conditions, they aren't being caged. So this is another point I felt needed to be fact-checked just before I moved into an excerpt of Michelle Obama's speech. After that, I'll end up with some final closing remarks about some more of the themes, the convention as a whole, a little bit of fact-checking again, and then I think I'll close out. So let me be as honest and clear as I possibly can. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. He has had more than enough time to prove that he can do the job, but he is clearly in over his head. He cannot meet this moment. He simply cannot be who we need him to be for us. 
It is what it is. Now, I understand that my message won't be heard by some people. We live in a nation that is deeply divided, and I am a black woman speaking at the Democratic Convention. But enough of you know me by now. You know that I tell you exactly what I'm feeling. You know I hate politics. The last phrase was really meaningful to me because throughout most of her career and her time as a political figure, Michelle Obama has really abstained from having an opinion on politics, even though she was the former first lady. It just goes to show how much our current situation has exacerbated people on both sides of the political spectrum. You know, there are angry Democrats who are um, disappointed with how our current administration is approaching topics like, you know, racial inclusivity, um, approaches to, you know, white supremacy and hate groups in the United States. There are Republicans who are scared that progressives in Congress are seeking to kind of push the limits of what should be considered political reform and then just completely reshaping a country and rewriting its values. So both of these segments just go to show, or all of these segments that I played for you today, hopefully just go to show politics is such a complicated topic. And there will be people on both sides who will use distorted or hateful language to tear down their enemies. There will be people who will bring up very rational and sane arguments that admittedly for you know me a democrat were very believable hearing them from republican speakers so this just goes to illustrate that it's really best to inform yourself on a topic you know wherever you get your news from if you read the news or wherever you get your your information from regarding politics it's always best to really just understand it for yourself not through the words of someone else so while i hope today's episode was a good informer or a good filler on both of these conventions and a little bit of a contrast on the major parts i'd really do implore you to develop your own opinions and there were some themes i didn't touch on today specifically some other themes brought up by the democrats were climate change green uh, the green new deal um, racial justice i could have talked about a bit more in detail um, you know diversity of our country and how that was showcased but and additionally, on the Republican side, some topics about um, guns, right, gun rights, individual rights, school choice rights, and women's rights. But generally, I, I feel like I covered most of the major points. And I really do recommend if you are looking for more information on those topics, to read the news, to learn more about the convention, read the transcripts, watch some more videos. Really just do whatever you feel is necessary to inform yourself personally so you can form your own political opinions. That being said, I really appreciate all of you for listening, and if you got this far in the episode, thank you so much for listening to the the full extent of my political rambling. As always, feel free to connect with me on Instagram at Global Perspective Podcast and my personal account at Caroline underscore OWXN. Be sure to tune in two weeks from now. I'm going to be changing my upload schedule due to the fact that school's starting very soon. But two weeks from now, I'm going to be featuring one of my friends who is a volunteer, a teen volunteer with the Biden campaign in Pennsylvania, a really critical battleground and quote unquote purple state for this election. So she's going to be giving a bit of her experience with the Biden campaign and with living in Pennsylvania in an interview. Thank you so much for listening. And if you like this episode, please consider subscribing or leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts. So that being said, I'm Caroline Owen signing off with the Global Perspective podcast.